Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. Um, Luke chapter 5, um, verse 1. How many of you grew up in church? How many of you remember flannel graph? There's some young people holding your hands up. You don't know what flannel graph is. They're like, I know what flannel graph is. No, you, no let, me, let me speak your language, VeggieTales. <laughs> you know what VeggieTales is. You don't know what flannel graph is. So flannel graph was this, this you know, they would put the, had these blue or brown boards of flannel, and they would put up these cartoon characters, and they would tell the story in Sunday school you know, uh, doing all that. Well, uh, when the, the thing of it is, when we look at Scripture, I'm going to come back to the graph in a second. When we look at Scripture, we, we have heard, you and I here in the West, we've heard the stories over and over and over again. So we anticipate what's going to happen. We know what's going to happen. Because of that, we think every time Jesus and the disciples and all these people in the Bible, that because we know what's going to happen, we think they knew what was going to happen. you got to realize Jesus is telling these guys to do stuff many times without telling them what the end result will be. Now, let me say this. If what I said earlier is true about Philippians chapter 2, and he put aside his superior God powers, he's coming as a normal human being. If that is true, then we're not even sure that Jesus knew what was going to happen next. Because the truth is, Jesus didn't have any greater advantage than you and I have because, again, he came as a normal human being. And so if we don't know what's going to happen next, it doesn't mean that he knew what was going to happen next. And so I want to take a look at the scripture from that perspective and, and, and understand and sort of exegete it from that, with that viewpoint, with that sort of thing in mind of we don't know what's going to happen next. Again, we've heard the uh, the Bible stories, we've seen the flannel graph. When my parents came back from Japan and they pastored a church in Atlanta, Georgia, we, we couldn't afford brand new flannel graphs. So we had hand-me-down, second-hand flannel graph from Second Baptist Church of Chattahoochee. And so our flannel graph was a little tattered, a little torn. So I grew up thinking Peter was an amputee. You know, somebody had ripped off Peter's leg, and I thought, you know, Peter was an amputee. I'm like, I don't get it. He can multiply fish and, you know, bread. Why can't he give Peter a new leg? You know, just, or heal our flannel graph. But because, we, we, because we've heard the stories over and over, we just anticipate, you know, what's going to happen. But if you look at it from the perspective of them not knowing what's going to happen, them not knowing what's going to take place, it changes everything in, in, you know, from that perspective. We got it? Going good? Okay. Let's show it. Uh, we'll, we'll, do, we'll do it again. Let's roll it. Would we be willing to spend two, three years in prison to see an entire nation come to Jesus? Will we be willing to lose one of our loved ones to see a nation change? Will we be willing to give that to see a thousand people change? What about 500? What about 200? What about even one? This is the question these brothers and sisters are wrestling with every single day. 
It may be this one that may cost me my life. This one may cost me a prison sentence of five years. Just venturing out for that one, the price is so high. And yet that one person, they could be the key to the entire nation. The keys to seeing peace come to the Middle East is not gonna be done through government, but it is gonna be done through us as the Church of Jesus Christ, demonstrating the reality that Jesus is here. What will win the Muslim world is not arguing over theology, but what will change them is when they have an encounter. Healing is an act of war. As you give a prophetic word, as you give a word of knowledge, those are weapons of war. You're fighting with weapons of war. That's how we break the back of the enemy, is by stepping out and doing the things that Jesus did. And what we are doing is equipping people, the underground church, to have a demonstration of power, to go out to activate the authority that lives inside of them. The vision is to bring them out for a month, do a month intensive, where every day we are sending them to the streets to put into practice and to activate what they've learned in healing, prophetic, deliverance. But what we wanna do is we wanna take it a step further by teaching and training them how to step out in the streets, how to approach strangers, how to do a, a gospel presentation outside of a safe place, but in a place where they can feel the ability to take a risk and to see those signs and wonders happen. It's so much more effective for us to train up the indigenous leaders and to see them raised up. They know the culture, they know the people far better than just us sending tons of missionaries over there or sending tons of books and pamphlets or information that relates to our Western culture, but not to theirs. This is not something that's cheap. It's a great expense. We're probably looking at anywhere between $750,000 to $800,000 a year. But I know God has that for us. My friends, we wanna see the church not being burdened, trying to figure out how they're gonna come and do it, but that we can make the way for them. I wanna encourage you, see the value of the price they pay and join them in being willing to do that. For you and I, it may be money. For you and I, it could be prayer. For you and I, it may just be time. This is our opportunity to arm them with the weapons of war, of healing, of salvation. Now is our window to see the kingdom come in the most dangerous parts of the world. And be praying for us. Our ministry with International Life Corps is our uh, ministry to the Middle East, and we're planting schools throughout. And so be praying for us. And, um, and uh, go to our website, and you can see how to join us and partner and be a part of that. Back to Luke 5. So... When we take a look at this passage and we look at, at our anticipation is always what's going to happen next. But again, we don't know that they know what's going to happen next. And so all of a sudden, when you see it from that perspective, you're looking at the fact that Jesus is asking them to do things where he's not even explaining what the end result will be. So I want to take a look at this passage with that in mind and understand what is taking place. It says in verse one, one day Jesus was preaching on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Great crowds pressed in on him to listen to the word of God. He noticed two empty boats at the water's edge for the fishermen had left them and they were washing their nets. 
Stepping into one of the boats, Jesus asked Simon, its owner, to push it out into the water. So he sat in the boat and he taught the crowds from there. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, now let's go out where it's deeper, let down your nets, and let's catch some fish. That's what the text says. Let me tell you something. How many of you people know men skip details? Men skip details. It's like on the back of our man card that it says, must skip details, especially with your wife. You know what I mean? Like you just skip details, men skip details. How many of you know Luke is a man? Luke is a man. Luke is also writing this 70, 80 years later. I mean, it's one of the synoptic gospels, but we don't, it's not being written in real time. And so, I want you to give me the grace to fill in the blanks of things that Luke is not saying here, but that we can imagine was happening here in this context. Will you do that? Will you give me the grace to do that? And so I can imagine what this looked like could be a little bit, because we sort of read it and it's flat. But when you read it through, what you can imagine the story would be and what it would look like, it sort of changes the perspective. So here's the story. Peter and his crew had been fishing how long? All night. All night. How much fish did they catch? None. How many of you know fishermen without fish are not nice people to be around? <laughs> you know what I mean? Fishermen like catching, not just so much fishing, but actually catching. And they caught no fish, so they're irritated, they're frustrated. You can imagine they're exhausted. Jesus is preaching to this crowd, and anybody knows when you do outdoor preaching, you've got to get distance from your crowd in order to project, or they can't hear you, because people absorb sound. And so Jesus has gotten as far back as he can get without getting wet, and all of a sudden, he's trying to project to this crowd. The boats that Peter and his crew have been using are sitting there, they're off to the side cleaning their nets, now, I can imagine it looks something like this. Again, because Peter's irritated, he's frustrated, he's over there. Get that seaweed out of those nets. Is that driftwood? Get it out of there. Is that a tennis shoe? Get that tennis shoe out of there. I can't stand the fact that people are throwing their bicycle tires in this lake. Don't they know we have to fish in this lake? I gotta go home. The wife's gonna say, where's the money? Where's the fish? I'm gonna say, we don't have any money. We don't have any fish. And my mother-in-law lives with us. She's going to say, I told you you should have married Barnabas. He's an accountant. He's bringing home a paycheck. I hate this job. Luke doesn't say any of that. <laughs> Ladies, men skip details, right? That's what we're working with here. About that time, about that time, Jesus steps over to Peter. And he says, hey, Peter, would you lend me your boat? I can imagine Peter turns and looks at him and says, you know what? You can have the stupid boat. I hate these boats. I hate these nets. I hate this job. Right now, I'd sell them on eBay for five bucks if it was here, but it's not. And I want to chop it up and sell it as firewood. Yes, take the boat. And Jesus is like, dude, I only want to borrow your boat. And he's like, yes, please take it. So Jesus steps in the boat, pushes it out, finishes up his message. Right about the time Peter and his crew get their nets perfectly clean. They're laying them up to dry in the nice warm Middle Eastern sun. They're grabbing their lunch pails. They're heading home so they can go sleep and come back and do it all again later that night. 
As they're walking away, Jesus wraps up his message and says, hey, Peter, I've got an idea. Let's go fishing. (laughs) Have you ever thought about this? And I can imagine Peter go, you're not from around here, are you? This is the Middle East. Maybe you haven't noticed this, but fish are cold-blooded creatures. What that means is when the sun comes up, have you noticed that yellow disc in the sky? When that's up, the fish go low, trying to get away from that thing. And we were out all night long fishing while that thing was down, and the fish should be out, but we didn't catch any fish. Clearly, you know nothing about fishing. You should go build an armoire. (laughs) But Peter says something powerful. But he looks at Jesus and he says, Lord, we've been fishing all night. He goes, but because you say so, we will. Because you say so, we will. Remember that. So imagine Peter trying to talk his crew back into the boat. Come on, guys, let's go back out. They're like, no, Peter, are you crazy? They're like, no, we're tired. We need to go home. We need to get some rest. We need to eat. We need to sleep so we can come back and do it. And he's like, please, please, come on. I told him we would go out. Just come out just with you. Let me just show this guy there's no fish out there. Just please. And he coaxes them back into the boat. What about all the other fishermen crews at shore? They're going, Peter, what are you doing? Are you going fishing? Hey, look at crazy Peter. He thinks there's fish. He's taking fishing trips from the rabbi who used to be a carpenter who's teaching him now how to fish. Look, he's lost his mind as Peter does the row of shame out to the middle of the lake. And they're laughing at him. And so all of a sudden, Peter gets out to the middle of the lake and he goes, all right, you don't know what fishing looks like. You want a fishing demonstration? I'll give you one. You stand by the edge of the boat like this. You grab the nets that should be nice and dry, but they're wet and heavy because they have not dried out yet. And you throw them over the side like this and you wait for fish. May I point out that are not there. We found that out all night long. You better give me a tip or something. Something to get my mother-in-law off my back. And then Jesus says, Peter, I know what's wrong. It's the same story from one of the different gospels, telling it a little bit different way. He says, Peter, I know what's wrong. You see, it's really simple. You have your net on the wrong side of the boat. It's simple. If you would put your net up from this side of the boat and put it instead on that side of the boat, (laughs) you catch fish. Peter's like, really? Really, Jesus, let me get this straight. You think six, eight feet over, lying under the brim of the water. There are fish under there going, They have their net on the wrong side. They think we're over there, but we're over here. Shh. 
they'll never know. Trust me, Jesus, that's not happening. But because you say so, we will. And the crew's like, Peter, don't you do it. Don't you, Peter, the other crews are back at shore watching. We will be the laughing stock of the fishing industry. Don't you dare do it. He goes, come on, they're laughing anyway. Let's just get it over with. As they're pulling their nets and starting to walk over, the other crew's back at shore. Can you imagine what they're doing? Looking over and going, hey, Peter, <laughs> what are you doing? Do you think there's fish on the other side of the boat? Hey, everybody, look at crazy Peter. He thinks there's fish on the other side of the boat. And Peter's like, no, I don't. I really don't. But he throws his nets over and he says, see, Jesus, I told you there's no fish. We got fish. Pull the nets up. They're pulling nets up. They're filled with fish. He throws him in the boat. He throws it over again. And just as quickly as Joe Biden can hire a bunch of dead people to vote for him, all of a sudden there's another boat full. Another net full. And then he throws it over again. And oh my goodness, there's another net full. The boat is filled with fish. Did I offend you? Stay with me. I'll get you there. All of a sudden... The boat is so filled with fish that it is sinking as they are trying to get back to shore. Now, before this, Peter realizes, I've got another boat back at shore. And he's like, hey, get that boat out here. We got fish. Not that side of the boat. Put it on the other side. Put an X on it. That's where we fish from here on out. That's our sweet spot side. The other crews are going, oh, crazy Peter was right. Get the boats, get the nets, let's all get out there. You do realize this is a crazy story. This story makes no sense. No sense at all. Peter has two boats so filled with fish that they are barely making it back to shore, sinking the entire way. And on the way back, all of a sudden it hits Peter. Peter's like, I'm a professional fisherman. I know my trade. I know how to catch fish. But it hits Peter, this isn't about the side of the boat. This isn't about the technique of holding the nets. All of a sudden, Peter realizes it's the presence in the boat that makes all the difference. Peter realizes the presence that's there has changed something. When they get back to shore, the scripture says Peter jumps out of the boat and he drops to his knees in front of Jesus. And he says, Jesus... You need to go away from me. You're too good. I'm not good. A guy as good as you are should not be this close to a guy as bad as I am. 
you hang around me, I'll disappoint you. I pretty much disappoint everybody. Yeah, the best thing for you, Jesus, right now to do is just, is just go away from me. And Jesus looks at Peter and he goes, oh, Peter, you don't get it. You see, when Jesus said to Peter, would you lend me your boat? That boat represented Peter's life. And Jesus was saying, you let me put my presence on your life. We'll catch far more than you could ever catch. We'll do far more than you could ever do without me on it. Would you let me put my presence on it? It'll make all the difference. Peter, Jesus looks at him and he says, Peter, you've spent your whole life chasing minnows. You've spent your whole life chasing these little fish. Now, maybe those little fish for Peter meant literal fish. Maybe for you it means dollars or success or fame or the approval of others. But Jesus looks at him and he says, Peter, I didn't make you to catch fish. I made you for the big catch. I made you to catch people. And you've been spending all your time chasing these little fish. What Jesus says to Peter next is not profound. But he looks at him and says, hey, Peter, Follow me. Have you noticed there's not much of a pitch in that? You know, sales people aren't studying that, trying to figure out how he got them to do it. All he looks at them and just says is, follow me. And Peter abandons, the scripture says, the boats, the nets, fish. Peter had probably been crying out to God all night long the night before for those fish. And the Bible says he forsakes them and walks away to follow Jesus. Matthew. Jesus approaches Matthew. He's a tax collector. Table full of cash. Jesus walks up and says, hey Matthew, follow me. And the Bible says Matthew abandons his table to follow Jesus. Can you imagine these guys walking past their family members? Excuse me, where are you going? Follow him. To do what? He didn't say. For how long? He didn't say that either. And why are you doing this? Because everything inside of me says, I have to have that presence on this boat, no matter what it costs me. No matter what I have to give up, no matter what I have to abandon, I have to have that presence on this boat. Will you lend him your boat? Will you lend him your boat? 
when it can mean your life. One day in my church in Aurora, Illinois, as I shared last night, the Latin kings were ruling our city. And one of the number two leaders of the Latin kings, his street name was Hitler. And his living girlfriend, they'd had a child together, started coming to our church. She had been there for several weeks, and this one particular week, I did a talk on sex, explaining in our community, we had to talk about that regularly, and explain sex is God's blessing on marriage. Sex outside of marriage is sin, and that still stands today. There are no adjustments you know, in that, and that you know, anything outside, anything outside of marriage between a man and a woman is sin, is not God's best for your life. And God wants us to have the best sex. The best sex is in marriage. That's the way God made it, as a blessing. So I say this, and so she goes home to Hitler and says, I'm not having sex with you anymore. Because Robbie said... Sex outside of marriage is sin, it breaks God's heart, and I'm not gonna break God's heart, so I'm not having sex with you anymore. And you can imagine his response. This warm feeling comes over him. Tears begin to flow down his face. He raises his head through his tears and says, I love Robbie. What a mighty man of God he is. We're going to do whatever that man says. That's my fantasy of how he responded. But that is not how he responded. He looks at her and he goes, you go tell that preacher that I'm coming there next week and I'm going to sit on the front row. And if he doesn't get up and take it back and say he's wrong, I'm going to pop him in the head in front of the whole church. So she calls on the phone and she's crying. She goes, Robbie, you cannot get up and preach part two on sex. Next week, you can't do it. He will do it. She goes, you know about Hitler. He will show up. He will do it. And I said, he's not going to show up. He's not. He's just mad. I said, you do what Jesus says. You follow what Jesus says and you leave Hitler up to God. And I said, everything will be fine. I said, but he's not going to show up. He's just mad right now. I said, but you keep following what Jesus says to do. And she goes, no, he will show up and he will do it. I said, no, he's not. It'll be fine. So the next Sunday, I'm in my little office preparing for part two. And all of a sudden, our worship leader, Carlos Lopez, who was, had been a part of that gang, and we'd gotten, you know, let him the Lord and come out of Latin Kings. He comes, all of a sudden, I hear, and he come busting in my door. And his eyes are huge. He's like, dude. That's that was sort of like saying pastor in our community. He's like, dude. He goes, Hitler's here, and he's strapping. He's I got a gun under his belt. He's like, he's strapping. And I was like, you saw the weapon? He goes, yes, I saw the weapon. And I was like, you for sure saw the weapon? He's like, yes, I for sure saw the weapon. He goes, and he looks jacked. And he goes, I don't know what to do. He goes, please don't ask me to disarm him. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to ask you to disarm him. I said, but we got to change some things around. We had this girl who was going to do announcements. I said, tell her she's not doing announcements. I'm doing announcements. And he goes, you want to do worship too? And I was like, no, <laughs> you're doing worship. I'll preach, but I'll do announcements, but you're doing worship. And so, so we walked downstairs and sure enough, he's sitting right there. And, and, you know, Carlos is up leading worship, just staring at him the whole time, you know. <laughs> 
And so I step out to preach. I wish I could say that I was like fearless and calm, but my hands were shaking. I'm like, welcome to church this morning. We're so happy to have everybody here with you today. And, and I'm moving around all those shapes. I'm like, children's ministry over here, bathrooms over here, you know, rest here. And I'm like moving around. It looked like a Wimbledon match, man. I'm bouncing all over that stage. And I'm like, if he's going to take a shot, I'm going to make him work for it. I ain't going to make it easy. He's going to have to work for it. But I look down at him, and he's just sitting there with his head kind of turned to the side. And I'm going here, here, here. And his eyes aren't moving. And I'm like, what's going on? And so I went in. I did part two, did a recap on part one, didn't change a word, finished up, finished up the message. But I kept looking at him. And then I got to the end of service, and we started having a call for prayer. And all of a sudden, I just saw him like shake his head, and he like looks around. And he just gets up and he quietly leaves. And I was like, what happened? And so later that afternoon, she called me. And she didn't come because she was afraid. And so she called me. She goes, what happened today? And I was like, did he come home? And she goes, yes. And I said, nothing happened. He just sat there the entire time. I said, did you ask him what happened? He goes, yeah. He just, all he keeps saying is, that church is crazy. I'm never going back there ever again. And I was like, all right. And so I said, uh, she, goes, she goes, I don't know. And I said, I don't know either. A few weeks later, the Aurora Police Department, along with the Chicago Police Department, arrested 24 of the top Latin kings throughout the Chicago land. We've got a picture uh, for you from the Chicago Tribune. Under that, under arrest, striped down here to this side, that's Hitler, where it's going across his eyes right there. That's Hitler. And so um, Hitler's brother, his street name is Pistol Pete. He's a drug dealer that went to our church. And he uh, showed up the next Sunday after this had happened. And I stepped over to him and I said, uh, I said listen, I said, Hitler, you know, was a, a part of the big sting and the arrest. And he goes, yeah. I said, you tell him I want to come see him in jail. And he goes, Robbie, they're in isolation. I don't think they'll let you see him in jail. He goes, I don't think they'll let you in. And I said, you tell him I'm coming to see him. And he goes, he didn't want to talk to you anyway. I said, tell him I'm coming there. And he goes, okay, I'll tell him. And so I went and I showed up. And man, when I walked into that jail, I've never seen anybody so angry in my entire life. He came in, orange jumpsuit, his hands are cuffed, legs are shackled. He comes in, as soon as he walks in, he goes, what do you want? And I said, well, I want to talk to you. And he goes, well, I had a question for you. And I was like, okay. And I said, what's that? And he goes, what did you do to me that day I came to your church? And I said, what did I do to you? What are you talking about? He said, man, I was going to pop you in the head in front of the entire church. And he goes, as soon as I sat in that seat, I was frozen and I couldn't move the entire time. He said, my nose was itching like crazy and I couldn't stretch it. It was driving me nuts. He goes, did you hex me? And I was like, no, I didn't hex you. I said, what are you talking about? And he goes, well, I couldn't move the entire time until finally at the end, I just said, all right, I'll leave if you let me go. And then I got movement back and I got out of there as quickly as possible. And I looked at him, I said, Hitler, I said, that was Jesus keeping you from doing something stupid. I said, because he's got a plan for you. He loves you. He cares about you. He has a plan for your life. And I, I, I was just using some basic analogies to explain things. And I said, imagine this is the life that Jesus designed you for. He made you to live this life. But you've settled for this jacked up, twisted life 
that you think has been the best life, but it's ended up you being here in jail and you facing a life imprisonment. And I said, now you're seeing how broken and how jacked and twisted it is. And I said, Jesus is here today, Hitler, and he's saying, let's do an exchange. I'll take the jacked up, twisted life, and I'll give you the life you were always meant to live. And I said, that's why Jesus came and died, Hitler. He came to give you this life that he always intended you to live. And I said, that's the deal that Jesus has on the table for you. Will you take the deal? And he looks at me and he shoves away from the table and he goes, that deal's not for me. He goes, that deal's for people like you and Mother Teresa and Billy Graham. He goes, they have me on six counts of murder. He goes, Robbie, that's not even the half of it. He later told me that he killed 18 people. He looked at me and he goes, Robbie, he goes, I have tied men to the steering wheel of their car. And I've soaked them in gasoline and lit them on fire and watched and laughed as they burned, begging me for their lives. And I watched them die as I laughed. And he goes, I've gone too far. He goes, that deal's not for me. And I looked at him and I said, Hitler, I said, you don't understand how Jesus works. I said, this is the Bible. We call this the holy word of God. And I said, Hitler, this portion of the Bible is called the New Testament. And I said, we read these as the words of God himself. And I said, Hitler, half of this portion of the Bible was written by a murderer who was murdering God's very own people. And yet Jesus chose him to write what we call the holy word of God. And I said, you see, Hitler, that deal, it's still on the table. And with that, he put his hand on my Bible and he said, I'll take the deal. And he burst into tears. And I prayed with him right there and watched this cold, hard killer give his life to Jesus. And when he lifted his head, tears streaming down his face, I later told his brother the story. And his brother looked at me and he goes, he said, you saw Hitler cry? And I said, yeah. He goes, Robbie, he goes, even when he was six years old and I'd watch our stepdad beat him till he was half dead, I never saw him shed one tear. He said, matter of fact, the only time he would ever laugh is when he was torturing people. And he goes, but you saw Hitler cry. And I said, oh, you're gonna love the rest of the story. And I said, as he lifted his head through his tears and this huge smile, as soon as he was done accepting Christ, this huge smile came across his face and he started rolling his shoulders and he goes, it's gone. He says, it's really gone, it's all gone. And I said, what's gone, Hitler? He said, all the anger, the rage, the hatred. He says, it was almost like this rock strapped to my back. It was like right out of the book of Pilgrim's Progress. It was incredible. And he says, as soon as I said that prayer, it snapped off and now it's gone. He goes, I can't believe it, it's gone. And the guard walked in the room by that time. He says, all right, time to get back to your cell. Hitler jumped up and saluted him. And the guard's like, whoa. And he looks at me and I'm like, He led him back to his cell. I would go back every week and I would just sit there and go through scripture with him and disciple him and show him. And I would, he he could barely read. 
And so I had to buy him a children's picture Bible, and he would sit there and look at these little cartoons in this children's picture Bible as we would go through and we talk about doing what Jesus says. No matter what, no matter if we understand or not understand, God's smarter than we are. Once you figure that out, it doesn't matter what you think, you care about what he thinks. And we would go through that, and we, I said, you don't do what your lawyer says, you do what Jesus says. You follow what Jesus says to you. That's what matters most, because he's the one you're going to stand before in final judgment. And we'd sit there and go through that, and he would just look over these little cartoons. And one day, after months of this, he looks up from his little picture Bible, and he goes, Robbie? And I said, yeah, we were talking about the life of Paul. And he goes, Robbie, he goes, i got to get my story out. And I said, what do you mean? And he goes, Robbie, people don't know how far Jesus will go for them. He said, Robbie, you can hate God. You can tell him that you wish you could spit in his face and tell him to leave you alone. But he just keeps coming after you, telling you he loves you and he wants you. Even send the guy that you want to kill to come and tell you how much he loves you. He said, Robbie, people out there don't know how far Jesus will go. And he goes, and Robbie, I really don't think anyone's telling them how far he'll go for them. And I looked at him and I said, Hitler, I love you, man. But I said, but if you get your story out, I said, bro, that could get you killed. You know what he said to me? He grabbed his little Bible and he shook it at me and he goes, you told me they all died for this. He said, you told me this was worth giving everything for. Now you're trying to tell me I should try to save my own skin? He goes, Robbie, the past few months in this stinking rotten jail have been the best months of my entire life if they took me out today. If they gave me the needle today, it would be worth it. And he said, Robbie, people out there don't know how far Jesus will go. And I really don't believe anyone's telling them how far he will go. And I was like, dude, you get it. Oh, that we, the church, would get it. The way Hitler gets it. Will you lend him your boat? Will you lend him your boat when it can mean your life? Will you lend him your boat when it can mean your reputation? Oh, so many of us are willing to take a bullet to the head for Jesus. It's almost a romantic notion. But to be thought a fool, to be rejected, to be abandoned... I remember the Lord spoke to me and told me one time, he goes, you get to worry just as much about your reputation as I worried about mine when I was down there. You see, when Jesus said to Peter, lend me your boat, and when he took that boat out, that was a prophetic act. Those fish coming into those nets was a prophetic demonstration that would be fulfilled on the day of Pentecost when Peter and the apostles stood up and the presence filling their boats 
make a call, and thousands come forward at the sound of the presence, just like those fish into those nets, responding to the presence. What was Peter after that day? Fish. What was Jesus after? Because you say so, we will. Jesus is saying, I can build a church on that that hell can't stand against. I can build a church on that that can go through thousands of years of persecution and thrive and grow just simply because you say so. We will. Will you stand? your heads right now if you would. If you're here and you're not in a relationship with Jesus Christ, you've not made him Lord, but you want him in your boat. If that's you, and you're saying, I want him to fill and transform and change my life, just like Hitler, just like Peter, if that's you, just raise your hand right now. Just raise it up. follow a courageous act and I want you just to with your hand raised just come down here come down here with me come down and join me right here how courageous was it for Jesus to go to the cross and this is your courageous step towards him God bless you guys This is a day of freedom. And if you guys would, just repeat after me in prayer. All of you repeat with them, if you would. If there's anybody else, you raised your hand, but you didn't come up. Yeah, come on, come forward. Anybody else? Now's the time to respond. after me if all of you would with them together Father in the name of Jesus I come to you now I present my life to you forgive me of my sins forgive me of all wrongdoing come into my life be Lord be manager 
lead me into truth that I may follow you every day. Holy Spirit, come and fill me. Occupy me with your power, with your presence, and with your love. Jesus, I give myself to you today. And I embrace eternal life with you. And she